Uh, greetings from Silicon Valley. My name is William Santana Lee. I'm the chairman and CEO of Nightscope, and I have beat the often path by financing a company in a very, very unique way. We raised over $120 million from 35,000 investors just before the public listing on NASDAQ. So it's been a, a long, long road. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help you think outside the box in your life and your career. Well, we've got a crazy one for you this week, folks. William Santana Lee is here, and he is quite the remarkable individual. Through incredible grit and determination, he rose through the ranks of the Ford Motor Company to become the youngest senior executive at the company at the age of 28. He was given a $250 million budget to build a Ford subsidiary called Greenleaf LLC, which led to him getting bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. He was recruited by SoftBank Venture Capital, made famous recently by WeWork and the show We Crashed, and funded or worked on a series of startups before landing on his current startup, Nightscope. Now, Nightscope is now officially a publicly traded company that previously raised millions and millions in funding and makes autonomous security robots in Silicon Valley to assist with security and law enforcement around the country. Needless to say, in this episode, I'm about to get schooled. I'm pleased to announce William Santana Lee. Unbelievable. Well, that is an incredible pedigree. Uh, I'm blown away. Thank you so much for joining me here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on board. And I'm so, so, so curious to learn about not only the product that you've launched, but also your history and how you ended up getting here. So welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. It's my absolute pleasure. So give us a little bit of a background. What is the product? What is the company in a nutshell? Uh, so we build autonomous security robots. Uh, they're a unique combination of four critical technologies that are extremely, really difficult unto themselves. Uh, we've decided to make it harder and just combine all of them. Uh, okay. So we've got uh, self-driving autonomous technology, like a self-driving car, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Uh, and, and they're intended to provide officers and guards really smart eyes and ears for them to do their jobs uh, much, much more effectively. Incredible. And they look outstanding. They look like something. Uh, have you seen the movie WALL-E? Never heard of it. Not, no idea what you're talking about. No idea. <laughs> I assume that's being facetious, but that's okay. They look very futuristic. Uh, look like almost like rocket ships, I want to say. What was the design inspiration for these devices? Um, we, we have, we're on a very, uh, not tenuous, but there's a fine line uh, these robots are not in on the battlefield. They're not for you know military use. Um, so we operate in society. You know we hold contracts from Hawaii through Texas to North Carolina, running twenty four seven. So we're actually in the community. Um, so we needed something that had enough of an intrigue, enough of a design element to bring the kid out of everyone. It's like oh wow, there's like the the thing that was on the science fiction you know movie screen is now down right in front of me. Uh, but because of the mission of, you know, long-term mission to see if we can make the U.S. the safest country in the world, you need a little bit of uh, physical deterrence, a physical presence, a minor level of intimidation so that you're like, mm, maybe I shouldn't do X negative behavior I was contemplating doing. So it's not that fine line, right? You, you need to scare away a criminal, but you can't scare away the kid or grandma. Uh, so yeah. that, that was the fine line. So that was the motivation. Okay. 
So before we jump into the company itself and the new product, could you tell us a little bit about your career arc? Because you've had a very fascinating career. So what did you do before you started this? And give us an overview. Um, by way of background, I'm an ex-automotive executive. Um, I spent 10 years in Detroit uh, at Ford Motor Company. Uh, 12 different jobs, actually on four different continents, uh, every functional area. Um, Ford was an awesome training ground. So I, if you go on my LinkedIn profile during those years, I, I look unemployable because basically every six months or 12 months, I've got a new job. And um, I had a wonderful opportunity to you know, work on, geez, I'm going to date myself here. I worked on the 6.8 li- liter V10 engine uh, ignition system. I worked on the Escort Tracer team with Mazda. I was the vehicle engineer for the Lincoln Mark 8. Um, worked for Ford of Europe, for Ford of Brazil, for Ford of India. Um, worked on some manufacturing rationalization, helped build some new plants. Um, my second to last job, I was director of mergers and acquisitions, uh, as I like to say when we're running around buying everything. Uh, my last job, uh, Ill, Ill, ill-advised, I was an entrepreneur. Uh, I helped build a company for Ford Motor Company. Um, so I, the board had released a quarter billion dollars to me to do a roll up in the used parts industry. Uh, and I bought uh, 22 companies in 11 months. I uh, had about 600 employees doing about 150 million in sales. And you know, at the age of 28, you, you're able to do that. You, you get that entrepreneurial bug. Uh, so that was, that's kind of puts a little perspective of, of kind of where I come from. 28 years old when all of that was happening. And you were the, the youngest something, right? The youngest executive at Ford or what, what was it? Yeah, exactly? at the time, Ford had 430,000 employees and I was the youngest senior exec uh, there. And, and again, it was an awesome training ground. I had wonderful opportunities and, and a lot of support from management. Unbelievable. So what did you go to school for? How did you end up getting there, do you think? Well, I didn't come from a wealthy family, so... Um, I did reasonably well in high school, but I was kind of thinking like, I'm not going to be able, or we aren't going to be able to afford whatever college I want to go to. Um, so my cousins actually convinced my parents to let me go to Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley for one summer, right after my sophomore year in high school. Mm. Um, so I, I got a couple classes done. Um, I used to have really long hair. It's kind of funny. A 16-year-old sitting in the <laughs> back of the class in general astronomy with a you know book and all these actual college freshmen uh, in that in that. So I got credit for that. Uh, went to Yale University the following summer to get a couple more classes done, and then I got into Carnegie Mellon uh, electrical engineering major with a minor in mechanical. And I scrambled there uh, to take some extra summer classes. So between all of them, I was able to graduate a year early, uh, which was kind of really important because, you know, just crudely, instead of cost going out, I got revenue coming in. Um, so uh, it was hard. It was that was brutal. You know, um, I think my last semester, I had four hardcore electrical engineering classes and two mechanical. And like, it was 30 days after graduation. And I now was still waking up in a cold sweat, like I didn't graduate. I forgot to get my diploma. I didn't take the test or whatever it was. I still it was, have those uh, It was a, a bit traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I still feel that. And I graduated over 10 years ago. So I know the feeling. <laughs> I still wonder if uh, anybody's going to find out the truth. And it's good that you overcame your period of being unemployable because some of us are still there. You seem to have gotten out of that phase nicely, though. Um. Yeah, well... After Ford, it was, you know, startup after startup after startup. And I mean, frankly, you got to have a screw loose to be doing a a startup. (laughs) Um, 
you know, a, a startup, as I often warn, you know, a lot of, you know, the tens of thousands of folks that have, you know, applied to come work at Nightscope, it's, you know, startups are really hard. 95% of them fail. Um, it will drain you emotionally, psychologically, mentally, and physically. Uh, you'll have the worst day of your life uh, within a few hours of having the best day of your life. It is a massive roller coaster. Um, and that's why it's important that you work on something that you're either very passionate about or, uh, as my wife would like to say, possessed uh, <laughs> over. And because, you know, I, when, when, when the likelihood it's going to fail... Uh, is very very high you got to have that not just the stamina but that slightly illogical unconventional sometimes stupid uh perspective to like i'm gonna fix this and just keep plowing ahead mm -hmm. and no rational person would frankly do a lot of the things that most founders do well that's good because we are not serving rational people here we're serving those weirdos who don't fit into oh, so any so everybody's got a screw loose excellent <laughs> not everybody but everybody who listens to and watches this show does that's for sure um, <laughs> this is the show for people with a screw loose that's the theory in general so as you move your way through was it apparent to you at a young age were you always excelling at things you were doing acing every test was school a breeze because to to advance so far so quickly obviously is an anomaly. Um, I, I did reasonably well in high school, less so in college, probably because I was trying to do too much and trying to get out of there quick. Um, yeah, there's always been that drive. So for those that have a screw loose and maybe are still in Corporateville, you know, one of the reasons I was able to um, advance quickly at Ford Motor Company was one really bad attitude slash trait that I had at the time, which was, I'm going to do two things. One, I am going to attempt to do my boss's, boss's, boss's job and make sure I'm always three steps ahead of everybody, which is hard to do, but it's, it's doable. Um, the other was, I was really aggressive uh, in terms of trying to move the company as fast as possible. Um, and so I had this really bad attitude of, okay, you are either going to promote me today or you're going to fire me today. Like I'm going to push that hard every single day. A couple of times I almost did get fired. Uh, so not a good idea. Uh, but I was really, you know, pushing everyone to, to try a lot harder and push a lot harder and think out of the box and, and the like. And uh, fortunately, I was uh, I was lucky to have enough of a, you know, support from the top to, to be able to do those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's some hairy situations in there too. Nice. Well, I love that you bring a different perspective to things because a lot of people, when they make a decision to set out on their own, we've had a lot of people who are a cog in the cor corporate machine and then just bailed or they said, I don't want to deal with this, but you made it so far. And that's interesting that you made it so far because ostensibly you could have stayed on that path, presumably for a very long time. And you said at some point, I got to do something else. I got to build my own thing. So what was the fire that led to you doing that, to realizing that you were better off taking the 5% chance on something new? I think two things happened at roughly the same time that um, drove me to do that. Um, I, I think one was uh, Greenleaf was the company that I had built. And just that gave you the entrepreneurial bug. I, I had my own board, my own HR, my own treasury, my own everything. Um, 
now what am I going to do? I'm going to go work on, be a vehicle line director on, you know, XYZ new car line or vehicle line. It's like, I, I don't know. Um, I think second was just the numbers on the board. Um, I think if I total it up, I had saved uh, the company a, a couple billion dollars um, over, Ugh. you know, a few years. Wow. And, I, you know, I'm looking at my paycheck and, you know, it kept going up and obviously kept getting promoted and double promoted. And, you know, they're all very gracious and, and nice. But, you know, the, the mechanics are like... I can keep saving folks a couple billion dollars or keep building stuff and creating a bunch of shareholder value. Um, but you know, where's my equity, you know, meaningful equity, not just normal corporate stock options. And so I think those two things combined. Um, and then maybe the lastly is maybe less, uh, I don't know, less gracious. Um, the more time I spent with, the senior levels that I frankly used to look up to a lot. Um, then I started realizing that they, you know, don't actually do work. Like you're going from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting and you're parroting what happened in the next thing. No one wanted to make a decision. I mean, it, it just, it, it was a little demotivating. It's like you have all this authority, right? And a lot of smart people, a lot of bright people, but, you know, you get up into those echelons and, and sometimes, you know, you get into the massive bureaucracy where well-meaning people want to do massive things and they can't, not allowed, or have lost their, the, the lust in the fire. Um, so maybe those three things combined. Hmm. So the legends are true is what you're saying in a nutshell. I mean, there's a couple of things that I, I really sorely miss um and i don't say this in jest i you know a couple of jobs i used to have there i, I would lose a billion dollars in rounding like a billion dollars in the real world when you need to go raise it to go build your own own company or what have you is you know a really tall task um so having that almost just not discretionary and un unlimited resources but at times it felt that way it's like jesus like, we can move a mountain here real quick um, so I missed that. And the other thing I really missed was um, uh, I got senior enough that they gave me a badge that would allow me to get into every advanced design studio. Whoa. And I always love to think and dream about the, the future. And so, you know, every couple of weeks when I probably had a bad day, it's like, okay, let me just go take a, an hour break and just walk around all the studios and kind of see what's brewing for next year, three years oh. from now, five years from now, 10 years. I miss that, the smell of clay. You know, there used to be a chief designer there who is Italian and would be singing at the top of his lungs <laughs> walking through this massive studio. Like um, Ford versus Ferrari, the, right? It was, it was <laughs> the movie. It was invigorating. You bring it up, yeah. It was invigorating and I, I miss that uh, sorely. Uh, but the rest, you know, the auto industry hasn't changed um, materially, uh, except for what Elon's done, which I have massive respect for. And um, it'll be interesting what happens over the next couple of decades. I, I, I'll place a bet there's a bunch of major automakers that are not going to make it. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. So you have the key to the city. You can open a hangar and you see an alien spacecraft. You say, okay, wait, wait, that's one too far, perhaps. You got to shut that door real quick. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen exactly. things that the rest of us can only dream of. 
And that's the inspiration. Well, you know what, what again is a different perspective and what I love about your particular arc is that so many entrepreneurs come from, let's say the ground up, they bootstrap something from no funding and they have the ideas, you know, if I'm trying to start with a thousand bucks or $2,000, I have different ideas about where money comes from. But when you have this basically risk-free way to play with $250 million to be an entrepreneur, but you said an intrapreneur with a lot of money, you can approach problem solving from a whole different perspective. You can realize I can bring on this level of person. I can have this many people. I have these resources at my disposal. Do you think that managing projects of that size changed the way you think about building a company just in general? Um... I don't. I don't know. I. I kind of like my my little model is life is short, and do what you love and make a big impact. And so screwing around on the margins is kind of not in my DNA. Mm -hmm. um, I think second, you know, it's not like two hundred fifty million dollars got downloaded from the cloud automatically, and it was just super simple to get that done. I mean, I basically. I mean, you're testing my memory here a little bit. It was a long time ago, but I, I think I. It took me 23 executive reviews over a period of six months to convince the management and the board to, to release that. It was basically, you're gonna go ask a major corporation to dump a quarter billion dollars into something that's not in the core business. Mm. And I, I know, looking back, I felt like I basically ran a political campaign. I mapped out exactly who's gonna be in the room um, how do I get everybody in that room to be nodding their heads in the right direction and like brief every strategic person possible? Um, actually, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so we got to the final big meeting and I had walked in and said, all right. Um, and everybody had already met me around the table. And I said, um, you know, I'm requesting $250 million, um, but right now I'm only requesting $175 million. I'll come back for the, the other $75 million once we made some more progress, thinking that maybe like a milestone in there, I'll get a chance to get it approved and whatever. So like six months of my life are hanging on this presentation. <laughs> and the vice chairman of the company at the time says, no. <laughs> And this is a massive room, like a big circular thing, kind of look like out of a movie or something. Like, oh, my and heart. And my heart just like. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, Bill, we're all sick and tired of hearing your presentation on why we need to do this. We are approving all $250 million and we don't want to see you back here ever again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> my boss is like. Who, who grew up in finance at, at Ford. He's like, in my 30-year career, have I ever gone into a meeting and someone asked for X uh, and got Y, <laughs> like above? Never, ever. I was, uh, and that, what, a, what a rush. What an awesome, uh, awesome feeling. Unbelievable. Well, congratulations. So you've, you've been responsible for a number of firsts, it seems like. So doing that, managing those projects, when did the decision come and how did you go about making the transition into doing your own thing? Was it something that you were building slowly over time, mulling over? Was it a sudden decision? How did that transition happen? Semi-sudden, I, I think, like, I, um, 
bunch of silly internal political things happen at, at Ford during this period. And so somehow I ended up making the corporate announcement for what we're doing with Greenleaf. Um, so over a couple you know, weeks, I got you know, media training, print, radio, TV, you know, scrum, put, you know, 20 microphones in front of me, like go. And somehow I ended up doing the announcement, which was a crazy thing to be doing. Like I, I moved the stock a buck that day and it's like, this is in, in, insane. And at the same time, it was like right during the dot com, you know, bubble craziness. Um, and so I got recruited by a, a venture capital firm to, uh, to come help uh, a startup, basically. Um, and that, that's basically what happened was, you know, uh, that experience plus, you know, all kinds of s craziness happening out here in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then my desire just career wise, like, OK, well, maybe I'll give this a shot um, what was interesting. That's so cool. And you're out in Silicon Valley now, so you must have enjoyed California. The transition suited you well, I assume. Not so bad. I'm allergic to snow now, but yes. Yeah, I feel <laughs> you. I'm in LA. It's so hot right now. It's like 95 degrees right now. It's super hot. <laughs> We're going to run out of water, but that's a different question altogether. But it is beautiful out here. So you're doing VC. You're experiencing the startup life. You're trying that. What were some of the observations that you had from your early days in the startup world? Pros and cons. Pros. Um, it's literally pay for performance. And, you know, you screw up, you get real immediate feedback, like real quick, like the next day. It's not, you know, some funded R&D project that you're sitting around for five years working on. And it's like, hmm, I wonder if anybody will want this. Like, you're you're on the edge, you've got everything on the mat and you're live or die by your decisions and you screw up, like you're gonna feel it, it's gonna hurt. Um, I, I think the camaraderie, like, you know, the band of bandits, a bunch of crazy folks that, you know, you, you recruit one nutcase and then you get another nutcase and then you got a room full of, of nutcases and like, okay, let's go change the world. I mean, it, it, it was fun. Um, I, that year, that first year, I remember, you know, part of it is the, the workload level. You know, if you work, you know, 18 hours a day, you know, six or seven days a week for 11 months in a row, like you're going to have some negative health consequences. Um, so the, the negative parts can, you know, a taxing on, on your, you know, physical health, your emotional health, psychological, everything. Um, I think the other was just how financings get done, um, outside of corporateville, um, not always in the best interest of the founder, uh, an entrepreneur. It's actually a pretty screwed up process. Yeah. Um, and now I have unfortunately done, not proud to say I've done more financial engineering than actual engineering, which is not good. But in order to get done what I wanted to get done, I kind of had had to do that. Um, but the way innovation and, and startups and, you know, financing is done is uh, broken uh, and certainly bordering on unprofessional in a, in a lot of cases. Mm. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you think is broken about it? Uh-oh. 
<laughs> now you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Feel free to not answer if you don't want to. Um, I, I, I should preface the question by saying this. A lot of people see that kind of financing, especially people who are entrepreneurially minded, as some sort of holy grail, right? VC is what so many people are looking for, what they dream of. They dream of that multi-million dollar cash injection into their idea. So to hear that there might be a flaw with the model might be interesting for some folks. But if you don't want to get into it, just say next question. I, I mean, I, I will. I mean, I've, I've been public about this before. It's just um, it is a hot button for me. So if, if I start ranting and raving, like hit okay. the pause button. It's fine. All right. Well, um, fast forward. So, so basically, um, there's a time and place for venture capital. Uh, so a few issues. One, and this changes widely, but crudely speaking, about $130 billion goes into startups every year. About 80% into software, 10% into biotech, and then 10% into other. Do you think that the economy is 80% software? No, it's not reality. Uh, so then a lot of bad stuff starts happening, right? Things that should be funded uh, for society's benefit, uh, still could be lucrative or what have you, end up not getting uh, funding because everyone's just trying to let's do the easiest thing. Let's come up with an app and, you know, we'll be able to, you know, 5x, 10x our money and, and out we go. Um, so, you know, we didn't put these people in charge as to what should get funded in the economy. So it's 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 flawed in that regard. Um, then there's the uh, one that really ticks me off is like hardware is hard. Okay. 80% of you are dumping everything in software. You're ex-software, ex-finance people. Like that's that's almost like saying a bunch of lawyers got together and decided to start a hospital. And they're like, man, surgery is like really hard. It's like really you tough. have no freaking clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and then you're going to, you know, tell a bunch of entrepreneurs you shouldn't do that because it's hard. It's no, you have no sector expertise. So maybe you should keep your mouth shut. Um I think the other problem is just compared to the public markets. So if someone buys 5% of your shares in the public markets, what happens? Emergency meeting. Uh, there's an activist single shareholder. You can figure out the acronym at the front door and emergency board meeting, call the crisis communications folks. We need to put a plan together. Um, there's, you know, a problem, but somehow in the private sector, some VC comes along and buys 20% of your company, steals two board seats, and somehow the CEO sends out a celebratory press release the next day is beyond me. Again, there's a time and place for VCs, so let me be a little bit more finer point. Let's just say you and I, uh, Ross, we're, we're going to make a social media app. Like, you know, we're going to quit Great. our jobs, we're going to go work on that. Done. And Mark Zuckerberg had retired. And six of his partners got together that are all ex-Facebook, maybe some ex-Twitter people, um, and some ex-LinkedIn people. And they started a fund to fund new social media apps. And Mark shows up with a $5 million term sheet and says, I want two board seats, uh, and we're going to help you grow this company. Like, you should just do the deal. Like, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, that is not the case, you know. Innovation, everyone's looking for the 10x return. Like you have to be out of spec, right? You want the outsized yeah. returns, the not normal stuff. 
But the founder should look like this. They should have this experience. You should have this amount of revenue, this amount of EBITDA, and this amount, and they should be located in this location. But other than that recipe, it needs to yield returns that are out here somewhere. Like I've never seen so many bright people act so stupid in my life. Like you want a recipe for what you're doing, but you want the the outcome to be outside of uh, of the formula. Like kind of doesn't work. So right. um, in our case, you know, uh, name me the fund, name me the general partner that's fluent in law enforcement, physical security, robotics and hardware, and we should pay a premium for their capital. Um, like not going to work. So, you know, what ended up happening with us when we started the company uh, Nightscope in 2013 was, you know, hey, Bill, you're out of your mind. This will never work. Um, it's hardware and it's software. You should pick one. Um, and physical security is not an investment thesis. You need to go away. Right. So it's really important for founders and entrepreneurs to pick something that they really love and you're willing to go to the mat for it. Because if you get a year uh, worth of earful of no, 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 and no, well, what are you going to do about it? And that, you know, leads you to start thinking about other ways to force what needs to get done uh, to get done. Well, that, that brings up a fascinating point. I love the point in life and one of my big theses in general and the reason why I do this show. I love when people make a decision that goes against what the world around them is telling them. I find that to be such a fascinating thing when all of these voices are saying, do one thing and somebody does another thing. Ross is where we started. You got to have a screw loose. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, but it's something more than that. I mean, you're not giving yourself enough credit. I don't think I, although that is true for sure. You have to have a screw loose, but what was it about this idea? Knowing what you knew, so having that experience for an extended period of time, both at a major corporation and then in the startup world, seeing what they value, understanding, okay, 80% of the companies are software, 10% is biotech. You had an inside look at that formula that you just described, at the playbook, and you said, okay, I've been studying this. I'm going to choose to do something else in this field. Why? Um primarily two things um so spending my time in detroit and then seeing um the advent and and the promise of autonomous self-driving technology i'm like wow this is going to turn the multi-trillion dollar auto industry completely upside down i don't necessarily agree with the path that everyone's taken to commercialize the technology um but that is profoundly interesting for me and then second I was born in New York City. Um, Someone hit my town on 9-11, and I am still profoundly pissed off about it and have dedicated the rest of my life to better securing our country. Mm. So when you're willing to take a two, three, four decade view on something and stick to it, like you're going to do irrational, illogical, and sometimes stupid things uh, to make sure to force the outcome that you want to happen uh, to happen. I mean, you look at the country, um, you know, the first role of government is what? To protect its citizens. I don't believe the founders of our country would ever expected us to build a society where going to work, going to school, or uh, going to a movie theater literally came with a risk of being shot or killed. Like, that is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. But our society 
experiences over a $2 trillion negative economic impact of crime and terrorism every single year. Wow. The country's over 200 years old. We're in our 46th president, and no one's fixed this freaking problem. Yeah. Like, I think uh, we should try to give it a shot. And, you know, I think it'll be, the you know, some of our teammates' life's best work. Um, that you can get up every morning and have the honor and privilege to try to help a society and try to fix a really, really hard problem um, is is worth the pain and suffering. Well, I think that brings up a good point in that it's not just that you have a screw loose, but I like the idea that you've been marinating on something, that you were passionate about this thing for, like you said, decades, because... It sounds to me like what you're describing with the problem with VC and Silicon Valley and startups in general is that very few people or perhaps not enough people are taking a step back and asking themselves questions like, what is the point of all of this or what is it for? And if the what is the point is just to get these insane multiples and returns on investment, that might not be a good enough point when you're thinking, but hey, we've got this very real issue of security. We've got this very real issue of people not feeling safe going to a movie theater. I mean, one of the one of the triggers, catalysts was Sandy Hook. And right after that, you know, frankly, a bunch of VCs did get together, made a bunch of press releases. We're going to go try to fix this and all this other stuff. Where are you? Mm. Right. And and then, you know, we reach out. And then it's like, yeah, we, we don't invest in, in that kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So you go in public uh, at a time of crisis, you make a commitment, and you don't have the stamina to follow through. Ouch. Like. Yeah, bad. So if I may ask a quick, quick personal question, do you believe, do you believe in gun control at all? Do you believe that gun ownership is part of this, or do you think that's a separate issue? I think we we as Nightscope need to uphold the the laws of the U.S. Uh, I think it it's lawful to have a gun today. Um, we should, you know, we're we're not the Supreme Court. We're not law enforcement. You know, we're we're here to uh, support. Um, I think that's a that's a different issue, and it does not lie in the crux. Of, of the major problem that I see. Um, yes, it gets the most attention right now. One could argue for 10 million reasons why, um, you know, uh, a well, what is it? Uh, uh, a well-regulated uh, militia with some muskets is not the same as what we have uh, right. today. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, if you want to, you know, go down that path, Sure. I don't. I, I'd rather us yeah. focus on solutions than than picking at um, divisive topics. To me, the divisive topic, the uh, unacceptable um, shame the country should have is uh, maybe this will be helpful for your listeners to give you some context. So the U.S. Department of Defense has one person in charge, Secretary of Defense nearly an 800 billion dollar annual budget right and we give the troops every level of capability you might ever imagine in a theater of war right a soldier wants a new tank 
uh, jet fighter, new submarine, whatever it is, there is risk capital, there is a process, there are massive, awesome companies that build this stuff, um, and the soldier gets the widget, right? We don't have that on our own soil. Like, we would never dare treat a soldier the way we treat our officers and guards. Mm. It, it is pathetic, right? So the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Department of Justice have no federal jurisdiction over the 19,000 law enforcement agencies and 8,000 private security firms. Where in L.A. are you? Uh, I used to be in the heart in Hollywood, but now I'm in a suburb, Glendale. Okay. So there's the Glendale Police Department. There's the Los Angeles County Police Department. There's the California Highway Patrol. Like the list goes on and on and on. No one in D.C. controls those folks. Each has their own budgets, their own authorities, and there's no risk capital, there's no innovation process, there's nothing. Um, and there's no one in charge. So when someone shoots up a school down the street from where you live, like who gets fired? Nobody, right? Because no one's in charge. Um, go walk by a, a police car and go peer inside. It's laughable. Like you took a rental car and Velcroed some and crazy glued some lights and a CB radio in it, and you having this person put themselves in harm's way every single day, like this is just revolting. Um, and to me, it's a massive lack of invention and innovation and capital to actually provide these folks some tools for them to do their jobs. Like there's a million officers and a million guards, right? They're running 24 seven. So at any given time, there's only 500,000 of them. So you want these 500,000 people with a number two pencil and a notepad to secure 328 million people across 50 states. Like this is ridiculous. And that's where the frustration uh, lies. And that's also where the opportunity resides. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I think it's a good time to segue into, can you describe for the listeners? So your product as it is today, nine years in, what does your product do? What are the capabilities of your product literally right at this very second? You have several so models. I, I practice, Ross, I practice this is very important. So everyone's got to listen up. Yep. The robots are here to kill everyone and take, take everyone's job. That, that's basically what we've developed over the last nine years. And I hope that you know, ends the, the podcast there. Can they take my job first? Sure. There's going to be a new robot right. just for podcasts. It's going to be really good. Good. Thank you. I need it. <laughs> no. So the robots are here to help. Um, and they do basically two things. Uh, one less obvious than the other. Uh, so the more obvious one is they gather over 90 terabytes of data a year that allow an officer and guard to have unprecedented situational awareness. So they have their eyes, ears, and voice on the ground in multiple locations at the same time. Um, so that can be very, very powerful. Uh, the second thing is maybe less obvious is for those that don't spend a lot of time in law enforcement or, or security is just the physical deterrence. So if you put a, if I put a police car in front of your home marked, um, criminal behavior will change, right? Uh, similarly, if you walk into, you know, you want to go steal a car at three o'clock in the morning at a hospital uh, and you see a five foot tall, 400 pound machine roaming around. There's no one around. It's not being remote controlled. I don't see anybody. The strobe lights going. It says police or security on the side. It's making some sounds. 
Like, I don't know what this thing does, but I think I'll not steal a car tonight or do it somewhere else. Um, and just being there changes the dynamic dramatically. And, and um, for those of you that, you know, haven't seen the technology, just go to nightscope.com, uh, go to the crime page, and there's a long, long list of all the positive things that the robots have already done for, uh, for society. And, and honestly, we're just, we're just getting going. Mm-hmm. I think, and I'm sure you've addressed this, like you said, you've done hundreds of interviews, you've addressed this question thousands of times, no doubt. But people have a natural fear. When you mention things like AI and robotics and law enforcement, there's a big, <laughs> big, big fear because it's how do we know who's controlling these things, what they're controlling? Uh, data privacy remains a very big concern, hot button issue at the moment. What assurances do you have for people that it's not just collecting and eroding their privacy, collecting their data and selling it and all of those types of things? Uh so you can take my word for it. In a lot of cases, that won't be good enough. Um, so we just did it contractually. Very simple. Every contract um, is legally stated. So the actual security day is owned by the client, not by us. And that's contractual and, and legally uh, spelled out. Um, that's the first thing to think about. Uh, the second thing to think about is we're operating in public environments, the concept of privacy kind of doesn't exist. Like we're not in someone's conference room or restroom or hotel room. Um, so, the, you know, it, it's kind of a, not exactly a, a, a good comparison or, uh, or understanding. And I think third, uh, you know, go look up the FBI crime clock and then be horrified to see that every few seconds, some awful crime is occurring in the U S somewhere. And you'll start realizing when it, comes close to home, you know, a loved one, uh, when it happens, then it's, where were you? Uh, have you caught him yet? Where is, do you have the evidence? Where's the footage? I, I thought you guys, you know, and you can't have it both ways. You either um, decide that we're going to uh, provide some tools uh, for folks to be able to actually do their jobs um, and you know, I think you as a citizen have a right to live in a safe country, in a safe community. Uh, and in order to do that, you kind of need some capabilities and tools. Otherwise, you know, um, or as I like to tell investors, like the market for crime is never going to collapse, right? You think 7 billion people are going to wake up tomorrow morning and all start behaving? Like, um, but you, you got to be able to, um, to, give the folks um, some capabilities again for them to do their actual jobs. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's a very fascinating point. All right, so let's take it to another another level altogether. Scale of 1 to 10. 1 is I hate my life. I have the absolute worst life I can imagine. 10 is I have the best life I can possibly imagine. Where do you feel at the moment right now? It oscillates. Okay. <laughs> between like five and 10 because as i said you know startups like it's up and down up and down you're like i start off with an awesome morning uh and then something terrible happens and then uh i'm in you know in depressed (laughs) and then the next minute something awesome happens so I mean, you, you can't, it's hard to answer that question. It's, it's up and down, um, but I, I, I'll, I'll take that back. It's up and down, but headed in the right direction. How about that? Okay. So when it's a five, 
what kinds of things might have happened for it to go to the lower point of the oscillation and what kinds of things, like what might have happened, you say it's at a five right now, and what might happen three hours later that brings it to a 10? Oh, jeez, Ross, it could be anything. It could be I've been trying to buy this company for three months and um, they're interested and I'm like, awesome. Um, and we move on to the next step. It could be me trying to buy a different company and she decides like, yeah, I, I want 10 times more than you're willing to offer. <laughs> like, okay, not feeling so great. Um, it could be we recruited someone that we've been desperately trying to get on the team and they said yes and they joined and things are going really well. Um, it could be, you know, unfortunately we might have to, you know, terminate someone. Um, you know, I, I, my, I have an awesome CFO and an awesome accounting team and the like, th thankfully, because I don't like hanging out with auditors, right? You know, that could screw up my day. Does anybody? Like you don't? 20 I minutes of like, oh, gee, can we Nobody just get off this call, please? <laughs> my next guest is an auditor, for those uh, listening. Uh, excellent, excellent. And she takes offense to those remarks, sir. Offense. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're just doing their job. Doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> And out there, there's a robotics person saying, I'm building a robot for auditors to help do their job. Anyways, that's yeah, another story. Exactly. I mean, it, it could be anything. And you get hit left, right, and upside down. Some things you're expecting, some things you're not. Um, and it's always something new. I mean, that's for those uh, folks that um, don't like the monotonous, um, the, you know, if you like the unpredictable, it's, I don't want to say it's a new job every day, but it's almost right. You're, you're, because the company's growing. Um, it's not the same company every day, and then you're dealing with new challenges. And then in some cases, it's, it's interesting new problems that you'll have. So, like for example, um, when we had just five robots out in the field, like okay, we could keep track. Where's which robot? You know, hey, we got a new contract. Hey, you go deploy it. What it was simple, right? It was, yes. you know, when you have like contracts all across the country, you kind of need to now sit back and think, uh, we have a broken process or we have no process, right? There are 17 people involved now. We need to kind of keep track. You're at different metrics or even different technology architecture that worked really well for a handful of machines. And now you're like, uh, that's literally going to break. Yeah. Um, and so you've got to address the technical debt and the process debt um, as you're growing the company. And most outsiders don't see that, right? The media, mm -hmm. the investors, Wall Street or whatever, they don't understand all the inner workings. And, you know, it's not the glamorous stuff, but you still have to do it. Otherwise, the whole thing, right. you know, won't oh, work. God. Sure. Well, I love the answers. I mean, we're approaching the end of our time, so I want to get a couple of philosophical things in, a little more general, uh -oh. so you know you know the nature of the show, Beat the Often Path. One quick question. So there's a lot of conventional advice. If you go on Twitter, Instagram, you get a lot of variations of the same piece of advice over and over again. What is something unconventional or that goes against the grain, something that you either believe or something that you took to heart from a mentor that you would say that very few other people believe or agree with? I don't. I can't quantify it, but I, I believe in negative fuel, hmm. um, which is when you're doing something a little bit different, 
there's so many naysayers, haters, rock throwers, people throwing banana peels um, physically or, or online. And you've got to have a mechanism to deal with that. Um, cause if not, you're going to crumble. Like, you know, I don't, I don't care if you're mother Teresa or the Pope or, uh, or some politician or actor or, or musician or whatever, you know, don't ever read the social media comments, right? Like it's just horrifying things, no matter whatever you do, uh, you just kind of don't read that in some cases, um, you're not going to be able to get away with not dealing with something really negative. Um, and you got to be able to turn that into fuel to drive what you're trying to get done. Like we just simple uh, math, you know, one out of 100 investors that you talk to, you know, might actually write a check. I don't know if that's the right statistics, but, um, you know, we closed 35,000 investors. Imagine how many people said, hey, you're a moron. This will never work. You're this is stupid. Hope you fail all kinds of awful things. And so you got to be able to like take the punch, you know, get back up, dust yourself off and back in the ring you go. And then you take that meeting that went really poorly and you go, yep, we'll see about that. Mm. And I don't know if that's a New Yorker in me or whatever, but it's like, uh, we'll take a punch, but we're going to punch back really hard. Um, and be able to power through it. And you kind of take that negativity and turn it into fuel for you to power through the rest of the night. Or it's three o'clock in the morning and you got to get something done. The auditors don't care. Your lawyers don't care. Your teammates may not care. Your shareholders don't care. The media doesn't care. Like sometimes your family either doesn't know or, or doesn't care. Like you need to just power through it. Mm. And it can be a very lonely you know, position to be in and you got to be able to deal with that negativity. Otherwise it'll consume you. Yep. Great, great insight. Great insight. That's a new one. Haven't heard that one yet. I love it. And the last final question before I leave the floor to you to promote whatever Uh-oh. you want to promote is the reaction to a philosophical proverb. So what does the proverb you meet your destiny on the path you take to avoid it mean to you? I, the only thing that comes to mind to me is, you know, I I live and love the future and the way I get there is by making it happen. Um, So I don't know about destiny. I guess you could, you can maybe conceive it that way. Um, But to me, it's if if you want to get something done, you're just kind of set your mind to it and, and not just be passionate about it. You got to be, uh, as my as I mentioned earlier, you got to be a little bit possessed about it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question, but that's kind of what comes to mind. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like the life arc. You know, I think one of the themes that I talk about over and over again is people who've gotten away from a path only to return to the path and whether or not that's a part of it or not, a necessary step, if you will. So if you say, I've had this hunch for decades I did something else, but I returned to something I always believed in. I, I'm very fascinated with those types of arcs. Oh, I see. I see. I don't know. I've been on the same path, you know, like laser focus. I'm going to force this to happen. Like Maybe you that don't concept that. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't work for me. <laughs> You're the outlier. Eh? That's okay, too. It's all data points. It's all data points in the big scheme of life. 
And from what I gather, you are an outlier on almost every data point, which is uh, clearly what has brought you to the level of success and achievement that you've been able to to do, which is outstanding. So again, uh, I, I, I'm, know, I'm humbled I, I, that you came. I, I would pause you me. there. I mean, I, I we've had some moderate amount of success. We're just getting started. I have an unbelievable team uh, that has kind of help make all that happen and some really hardworking folks that have put in the same level of dedication, uh, literal blood, sweat and tears, um, and for uh, unending years. And you got to be kind of relentless. And I, I, you know, I realized I've been starting to draft um, the annual shareholder meeting stuff for now that we're publicly traded, you know, got to do all that good stuff. And just reflecting on, you know, my immediate team that you know, works with, for me directly uh, or with me. And it's, you know, I got lucky. I got surrounded by some unbelievable people that are, you know, have just as much a screw loose as I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can think of no better way to wrap it up than that. I don't, I wouldn't say that it's just luck in your case, but that's just an outside opinion. I, I recognize that you believe that. Um, so I want you to have the final word here. So what would you like to say? Anything you want to promote? Obviously we mentioned the website before, but the floor is yours to wrap up and close out this episode. Uh, Hey, listen, Ross, I appreciate you having us. Um, if you're fascinated about the technology, um, certainly go to nightscope.com, go to the roadshow page. We actually have this crazy robot aquarium (laughs) that I call it a bunch of robots running around, uh, the country that we've uh, now done, I think, three dozen stops uh, where folks can come touch, see, feel, uh, and see the robots. They're in uh, D.C. this weekend, and uh, we're making our way uh, across the country. So if you'd like to see some autonomous security robots uh, up close and get your obligatory robot selfie, um, be sure to, <laughs> to, to, to stop by. Uh, on a more serious note, you know, we're asking folks to, uh, you know, support what we're what we're doing um I, we have this little uh uh, uh theme of uh, long night scope and short the criminals like we kind of need to have that level of support across the country if we're really going to achieve the mission and this can't be just us uh here in silicon valley building some cool stuff it's going to literally take a cross section of the entire country to decide that we've had enough um stop arguing about the problems and let's see if we can uh, fix it. And we have something that can actually uh, be super helpful. So we're very gracious, very uh, grateful uh, for all the gracious support from uh, all our supporters across the country. And uh, like I always say, long night scope and short the criminals. All right. And that's night with a K, K N I G H T S C O P E dot com, night scope. Bill, thank you for joining me. And with that, the official podcast is over. Oh.